Hi, I'm Tony James, creator of Star Noir. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, T slash J, or Instagram at Banana Bat. And you're watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by a very talented comic creator. I happened upon his comic more recently. This is an amazing comic. He has a current Kickstarter campaign as well, too. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're joined by the ever-talented Tony James, creator of Star Noir. How are you doing today? I'm good, Kurt. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. It's a beautiful day when you have coffee and you get to talk to creative people. So that's always a fun time. It's always a great day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person, tell us who you are and what you're bringing to Two Geeks Talking. My name is Tony James. Uh, I am the writer of this six-part murder mystery called Star Noir. It is about a 1940s detective who teams up with a gray alien to stop a shapeshifter who was killing LAPD officers in Central Station. It's very L.A. Noir meets the X-Files. As long as they walk faster than L.A. Noir. That was a real pain of that game. There's a little <laughs> more pep in, pep in the step in this, in this story. It's great to see these types of detective stories. I think it harkens back to a time when you have your hardball detective, you have your Sam Snead type character. What is it about the world that you put together that makes you want to come back to it, especially for six parts? Well, I am a really big fan of 1940s Hollywood. There's a lot of a lot of movies that I, I watch from that era, you know, whether it's uh, Detour or The Blue Dahlia or The, the Big Sleep. Uh, the Big Nowhere, uh, the James Elroy book, is one of my favorite books in that series. If you don't know James Elroy, he also wrote L.A. Confidential. Yeah, so I, I love that just post-war Americana. I mean, 1940s Los Angeles has just so many iconic buildings. You know, the the outfits are are so iconic. I mean, everything just, just top to bottom is just very majestic, very, very iconic. And I just really wanted to tell a story set in that world. It looks beautiful. I mean, the Art Deco style, of course, of the 40s was uh, very prevalent, especially in the in the California Hollywood era. It really filters into, I think, from what I've seen from, from the art style. You're obviously the writer of this amazing series, but who is the team around you that have built this beautiful comic? First, we have uh, Pablo de Bonas. He is from Argentina, uh, a very, very nice guy, very awesome. We have uh, Vinicius Townsend. He is a colorist from Brazil. I, when I found him, he was doing some colors for G.I. Joe for IDW, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and then our letterer, Marco Ventura, is an Italian letterer, which was really funny about my relationship with him is that when he's not working on this very gritty, very dark noir story, uh, he's working on a much lighthearted cat comic that is uh, now a board game that's uh, that's also that he's also crowdfunding. So you have a multi-talented uh, worldwide uh, creative team. That's wonderful to see. I love it. When you first got the art for this particular series here, of course, for Star Noir, what was it about your artist that just drew you to his style, especially for this iconic 1940s era? Um, he elicits so much emotion um, out of out of the characters. Uh, you know, when I wrote the the, the script, the panel script for him, um, a lot of my descriptions are very simple. They're just focused on one particular action, one particular emotion, um, and he just adds such a, a dynamic view to everything. I show, I you know, I say that there's a a scene with a crime scene. Just get a shot of that. Uh, and he just, you know, he he shows different police officers walking by, you know, someone taking photos, like all these extra things that I was that I wasn't originally intending. Um, so I just really love the 
the attention to detail um, and the dynamic vision that he adds uh, to my script. The coloring obviously is is a key factor. I mean, you have to have a beautiful set of colors. What was it about the color palette that was chosen for this? Not only for the characters, but also for the the villains of these shapeshifters. Well, for the colors, I really wanted um, a very vintage look uh, that kind of fits with the 1940s era. Um, and uh, Venetius, uh, yeah, he just came up with this kind of uh, this brushstroke style that kind of makes things feel very very dated uh, in the best way. Uh, that makes it feel of that era. I mean, the influences that I kind of gave him, um, one of the comics that I, I, I really love, I'm a huge fan of, um, is this book called Hit. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, the color palette and uh, the brushstroke style in that book, uh, I think it's just really stylish um, and really kind of brings out the 1940 setting. So in Venetia's own way, uh, he kind of did his own his own version uh, that looks that looks amazing. I'm, I'm constantly blown away by by new pages that he sends me. Yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, I, from the samples I got, it was beautiful. It was just, you go from one page to another, especially in the sequence you gave me, I was just like, wow, this really just pops off the page. There's something in every single panel and even the character designs itself, you see the shadow and you see the highlighting as well too. And it just looks incredible. I mean, you, you, you knocked it out of the park with this amazing team. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they make me look really good. Uh, honestly, like, my, my the, the writing is, is, is really top notch, but I mean, they really just take it to the next level. When you're writing this particular series, though, what were you drawing from? Obviously, you've mentioned your inspirations from the 1940s and the Hollywood styles and the films. So, but mm -hmm. when it comes to character development, though, that's usually a very intricate part of the writing style, especially with your process. How did you come about that? And and what can we learn from your creative process? Well, writing the characters, I mean, every script that I write, I'm just trying to drill down to authenticity because uh, that's the only thing that really resonates with a reader. Um, you know, I, did, I didn't want to just be all, all flash with no substance. I wanted you to empathize with these characters to make them seem very believable uh, in what they do. Um, not trying to make them cartoon cliches of what you think about when you think about 1940s noir. Um, so there's nobody sitting there like, damn it, I want your badge. That's the last, of, that's the last of it. Like there's not a moment like that. Yeah, okay. Everything really just comes from just trying to drill down to honesty, to honesty, to make this, these characters, every single character, even a character you see very quickly uh, to be very believable. Well, let's talk about your characters as well, too, because we haven't mentioned their names. You've mentioned the plot, but you have a detective, you have an alien, you have shapeshifters. I mean, this sounds like an XCOM 2 uh, <laughs> situation in, in its finest there. Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, Alan Alan Miller. Uh, he is the, uh, the the very human, very gruff looking detective uh, that's right there over my shoulder. Yeah, so he's a, a a very seasoned homicide detective, very callous of the time, not afraid to get his hands dirty to get the information that he needs. Um, and then conversely, you have Ellis, uh, who is his gray alien partner. He is much more um, much more diplomatic, more intellect over anything. Um, he doesn't carry a gun, which gets him into some some funny moments uh, in the story. One of the key things about the relationship is that. Everyone can see uh, basically a Tom Holland looking character uh, in Ellis's character, but Alan can see Ellis's gray form, a uh, gray alien form. Um, and the story dives into why that is. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, I mean, you have a little gray alien, especially walking around 1940s Hollywood, something's going to happen. Like, this just makes me want to read it even more. <laughs> 
yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a really really fun story um I, I think when you get to the end of the first book and you really kind of see what the the general conceit is going to be for the series uh, it really just it really hooks you in you have a kickstarter campaign currently ongoing it's for book two or issue yeah. two i should say talk about the reaction to book one and the release of book two for this campaign what what are we going to see in in book two that's going to make us want to even more than what we've already heard. Well, the reaction to book one was incredibly strong. Um, you had people, you had people saying like, you know, I, I I didn't know that I needed this, and now I need it, and I need to know what happens next in the story. Just that it was kind of a really strong reaction to it. Um, people uh, immersive is the is the word that people constantly constantly kept using. You know, it takes you less than thirty minutes to read this book. Uh, but they constantly talked about how the time just flew by. And by the time they got to the end, they were almost like disappointed that there's not more story to, to dive into. Uh, so the reaction to the first book was really, really strong. I think that really showed in the first day of our campaign. Um, the uh, the first day for the book one Kickstarter, uh, that day one, we raised like $700. But the uh, day one campaign for book two, uh, that was 2500 um, so you had a lot of people really engaged, really wanting to come out for it to see the series continue. Um, and with book two, uh, it really now that the uh, the central conflict is established and the and the characters are established, uh, now the story is really off to the races. And now we really start to see this murder mystery start to unravel. Uh, more police officers uh, start to lose their lives, um, and uh, yeah, the the alien aspect starts to get uh, much stranger from here. Um, yeah, it, it's just a, the, the, the tension just really just dials up, um, in book two. But that's good. I mean, the fact that you, you're so passionate about this particular series doesn't need me to ask questions because you're just giving me all the answers I, I want. So I love it. What's the most misunderstood aspect about the 1940s detective genre, especially when you include an alien in it, that people who don't follow it misunderstand? Hmm. I don't know if it's really misunderstood so much because, you know, you did have you did have police officers that were not by the book that a lot of them were on the take just because there was just so little oversight at the time. Um, you know, you might kind of reel back at, at, at a, especially now at a, at a police officer being a little, you know, brutish to a suspect. But I mean, that was really just par for the course because. Um, as Alan says in in one of the lines in uh, in book two, he says, you know, bribes and brutality. That's how you get things done in this town. You know, just trying to, you know, have such a diplomatic approach and just, oh, if I just ask the right questions, the suspect will just give everything. But that's just not how how things worked at the time. Um, so I don't really know if it's it's mis um, misunderstood. I, I I will say that that movies um, and television shows they they've kind of cliched a lot of things. Um, and what I tried to do in Star Noir is just try to, to strip the cliches. Or if there is a cliche, just really flip it on its ear so it it, uh, it really subverts your expectations. You can always fall back on cliches. And, and sometimes as a writer, you could also fall back on, on lazy habits like that as well, too, because it's what everyone knows. I, I definitely don't want to come across as cliche. And if you see something in the book that is approaching cliche, uh, just know I'm hyper aware of that. Uh, and it's probably there to, to, uh, throw you for a loop. Good. At least. Yeah. If you're aware of your writing style and the fact that you're utilizing the cliche to make it an even better twist, I think that's amazing. I, I think a lot of people are, 
as you say, hyper aware of it. <laughs> I'm glad you are. So it yeah. makes you I mean, I mean, that's the benefit of cliches. I mean, they're, they're there to subvert the, the reader's expectations. You know, when you see something and you think, oh, it's another one of these, but then it goes in a different direction than you were expecting. Well, then now you're, as the reader, you're in uncharted water and now you don't know where this is going to go. Uh, so I think that's really, that's really exciting. And you have four more books to put together as well, too. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, there's there's a lot more subversion to, to be had. Uh, have you completed all six or are you still in the process of writing them? Yes. Uh, yeah, before we even started book one, uh, this was already a full script, uh, had everything broken down. Uh, there's, there's a full vision here. Uh, the mystery is uh, something that we kind of worked backwards from. Um, we kind of knew what the ending was, uh, and then we slowly worked backwards to figure out how we're gonna piece out the mystery to the reader. And it's actually kind of the reason we were able to to jump right away into book two, because you know the team's really excited about working up, working on it, um, and I have the script ready. So we kind of just launched right into the next book. So it's gonna make your Kickstarter campaigns a whole lot easier then, especially since everything's done. <laughs> Yeah, for, for sure. It's one of the easiest. And also, there's no um, uncertainty as to whether we're telling the best story or whether the story could be better because we've just been over the script so many times. We've pulled it apart and put it back together. What we have now in these six books is just a really tight, well-paced mystery. That's the one thing about supporting campaigns. You don't know how the story is going to go, but the fact that you have a fully completed script yep. eases my mind at least. So I'm sure it'll ease your readers as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you also don't want to want to run into the the J.J. Abrams situation where you you pose all these interesting questions and then you don't have satisfying answers for them. So that's not that's not gonna that's not gonna be me. You want to make sure you have good answers for your questions, and I and I really do believe we have that with Star Noir. In your opinion, what's the most important quality of a writer in today's comics? And how does that translate to what you've done with Star Noir? An important quality of a writer is that you always need to be learning. I've spoken to a couple of writers uh, over the years. I'm kind of shocked the number of them that read one or two books on story structure, and then that's it. And they feel like they just know everything they need to know. I feel like you're limiting yourself. I think you need to read everything you can about story structure and find your own applications for the things that you learn on there. And also challenge the things that you learn in those books as well. Because if you are just fixed on what you know and you feel like you don't need to know anymore, I think that's a recipe for a stagnating writer. Um, so always being open to learning new things about story structure, about character development, be willing to understand that how you're doing things might be incorrect or there's a better way to um, execute your ideas. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't question what they they read. They just take everything at face value. And that, that was one thing I learned in my communication degree is if you don't ask why, then you're not going to know how and where this answer came from or this response came from. Yeah, for sure. What was an early experience where you learned that language had power? Early experience when language had power. Uh, when I was in high school, I wrote a stage play in which an aunt tells a little girl a, a fairy tale love story that in the end uh, turns out to be um, about the aunt herself. When it was performed by um, you know other actors, the audience really got hooked into it. I mean, when the, when the twist was like, oh, this is about the aunt, like there were loud like awes and and whoa, like. That was kind of a moment where I was just like, okay, if if you can kind of make it engaging enough, people will respond. Um, and I that was that was pretty awesome um to see in high school. Um, and I've been I've been chasing that ever since. 
Is that going to become a maybe a one shot comic at some point? You know what? I think I might I might dust that one off and and bring that back. Make that a one shot. <laughs> I, I think it'd be fun. It sounds it sounds cute. It sounds like something that would be especially in today's society. I think that would resonate very well. It shows a different side of you as as a writer as well. And maybe you'll you'll fine tune it, but maybe you'll leave it as is. Who knows? I mean, it's been a while since you've been in high school, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fifteen years since high school. <laughs> so, so you experienced life a little more than than back then. Right, yeah, for sure. I that was one of my earliest writings. Uh, so I, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm a much better writer since then. What's your favorite underappreciated novel? I mean, I really got to say the Big Nowhere, uh, the the James Elroy book. I mean, you know, when people think about that that author. They always go right to LA Confidential because it was the only one with an adapted movie. Um, but you know, the big nowhere is is that author's magnum opus. I mean, not only are we following detectives, but we're we're like keying in on on gangsters of the time. Uh, it it's just such an ensemble cast that I think is even I think is even better than LA Confidential. LA Confidential is really just like this laser focused detective story, but this one is really more open and we're hanging out in 1940s Los Angeles and we're we're meeting you know we're meeting movie stars we're meeting detectives we're meeting gangsters we're and it really kind of sucks you into that world where you just feel like you're just hanging out um in a in a bygone era ah, another underappreciated novel uh you know this one's a silly one I'm gonna back it up I would say the first Harry Potter book I think what I learned from JK Rowling was that you know with a good mystery as long as you put the pieces in front of the reader, the twist will seem very fair. Mm. When, you know, when they see the twist and they go, how did that come together? And they realize, oh, you gave me all of these breadcrumbs and I just ignored them the entire time. And now I have to go back and, and read it to see what I missed. So I, I really like the way that she did uh, her mystery where it's just, it just feels fair. It doesn't feel like it comes out of left field it feels like it, it properly built its mystery. What was the first comic or book that made you cry? Oh, oh man. So Will Eisner did these series of books uh, called the Dropsy Avenue Stories. And uh, if you don't know, it's it's basically about the the rise and fall and then ultimately rebirth of a New York City neighborhood in, in the 40s. And it's a series of uh, collected vignettes of stories um, that are interconnected. Um, and one of them was about um, a, a landlord, a superintendent, you really kind of the the building was so demanding of his time, you know, to fix things, to uh, turn on the heat when it was cold. He was trying to be just such a nice guy, and um, the entire time, one of the things that's really tragic about that story is that he has a dog, and some some little girl tenant is like, "Oh, can I can I feed your dog?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." And she feeds him a piece of chocolate, and the dog dies. That was kind of a really heartbreaking story. Um, and now whenever I see a super, I, I constantly think about that story. And it's like, this is why you have to be nice to them because they are getting a lot of demands from a lot of people. Um, and they're really just trying to do the best they can. What is your creative kryptonite? Mm. My creative kryptonite. Ooh, uh, I think I can, uh, my creative Kryptonite is probably getting stuck in an edit loop. Uh, I constantly want things to be perfect. It works to my detriment sometimes when an artist needs to get pages or we have to get things off to the printer. I don't know, just talking myself into that. This is this is great for what you're doing. 
uh, and you don't need to do any further revisions on this script or this art or or what you need to send to the as a proof to the printer. Um, yeah, just trying to get myself out of that edit loop, um, which I can definitely be stuck in for quite a while. What is an edit loop and how does it start for you? It starts, okay, so a character uh, has a line and one of the verbiage that they use, I feel is very rudimentary, very elementary. And I'm, and I kind of, well, let's just try one more sophisticated word. Well, that word sounds really pretentious. That doesn't really feel like something that would be in their vocabulary. And then you try another one and then you try another one and you go back to the original one. You go, yeah, but I still hate the original rudimentary feeling of that one. So, and you could just do, you could do that for hours and just getting to the point where it's like, Hey man, if they don't like the story, I guarantee it's not because of this line. <laughs> like the, the story would have much bigger problems. Um, uh, so yeah, that that's definitely one example. When you were writing this series, did the writing energize you or did it exhaust you? I mean, it energized me. I mean, honestly, um, you know, when you write a mystery like this, you really don't feel like it comes together um, until you really nail the, the final twist of it. When you got to the final twist, a lot of things that I had set up earlier on started to click in place and things that seem like throwaway lines or a throwaway moment suddenly such had immense value um, that really kind of like excited me and made me want to go, oh man, this is not only is this going to be just a great read the first time, but when you go back knowing what the twist is, uh, you're just going to be so hyper aware of these smaller moments. Um, and that really excited me. The Kickstarter campaign is currently ongoing. It's for book two. What do you have that's in this campaign that maybe is a little different than your first campaign? Or what did you bring back from the first campaign that drew a lot of interest. So we have new for this campaign uh, is the art team and I, we uh, created a, a piece of 1940s uh, pinup art uh, mm -hmm. with one of the characters who was featured, Stella Belafonte. She's on the cover. She's the, she's the club singer uh, at the Dragon Room in the second book. Um, and uh, one of our tiers is to get a, a six by nine um, sized uh, pinup of this. Uh, and it's really stylized, hired by art of the time. I'm pretty proud of, of, of how that came out. For things that we brought back, um, people love the 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 prints where we kind of take a select uh, a select panel, um, and uh, just really focus on that as a as sort of a postcard tier. Uh, and then we made baseball cards uh, that people really seem to like. Yeah, we we put the uh, the the badge number on one side, um, and then we put the the characters uh, on the back and some stats about them, and even like the type of sidearm that they use. Um, so just since every detective uses something different. Nice, I love that. That's great. Yeah. I wasn't expecting a police officer baseball cards. That's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> twist. <laughs> well, you know, baseball cards seem very up the time, so that's why we made them. Do they fit into uh, bicycle spokes? Do kids still do that? I mean, you could. Yeah, you, definitely, you, could, you could definitely put them into some spokes. <laughs> I'm, I'm aging myself on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone usually asks, what's the wisest piece of advice or what's the most BS piece of advice that you've ever received? But what is your second wisest piece of advice that you've received that has stuck with you in your career? Finish your breakfast. That's probably the wisest piece of advice. I think for me, I am a little bit of in a rush to be a great writer, uh, but it takes time. Uh, there's just no, there's just no shortcut. You can't pick up writing and then in five years you're like the greatest writer of all time. So for me, just remembering that it just, you just have to just take your time um, and you grow as a writer um, and just just not be constantly in a rush. At what point are we good enough? After we're dead. And even then, maybe not. We can only do with what we are dealt. 
and how we can change ourselves, I think, personally. So if we're not improving ourselves in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just a little bit every day, then we do what we can. Yeah, yeah. Up, up until then, just trying to do the best you can. What in life is beautiful to you? Hmm. With so much noise going on uh, up here, um, just the moments of calm. I do a lot of meditation, and I just feel like the moments where I'm able to just quiet down for even you know, a couple minutes. Um, I think that's, that's really beautiful. It's really hard for, uh, for a lot of people to slow down um, and, and just try to kind of just, you know, just take it back to basics as it were. But yeah, the, the moments where I'm able to just kind of, you know, quiet my head and just absolutely still and not be worried about a million little, little different things uh, and just be still. Yeah. That's, that, that's beautiful to me. What is one mistake that you'll never do again? giving my artists way too much description in a panel that drives them absolutely nuts uh that was what i did with my first book not star noir but uh the cyberpunk comic that i did before that um the artist that i worked with was a really nice guy he honestly he had so much patience for me um yeah i would just overload it with with just so much description when in reality, it really is just down to a specific action, a specific thing that we're supposed to see and letting the artist uh, shape that uh, themselves. In the effort to not annoy artists in the future, it's the one mistake that I made that I have not made ever since. Also, I mean, you're, you're paying them by the page as well, too. So you want to give them as much creative freedom as you can. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't want to feel I don't want to be stifling to them, to what they do. So the meditation aspect, that's kind of interesting. How does that help you in your creative process? Hmm. Well, it definitely provides a lot more focus. I think when I come out of meditation, uh, I am able to be much more locked into my work. I just think in this era, we're we're just constantly overstimulated, you know, with social media, all the things that we, we can watch at one time, everything that's just kind of going on in the world. And being able to meditate just really helps me focus on just what's important, the one task in front of me. Don't worry about the marathon that you have to run, just focus on the half mile in front of you. Um, and that's what meditation does for me. I think for me, it's just something like calming music while I'm editing or while I'm interviewing or like while I'm working on something will just get me into a nice zone where I could just be focused on being creative. The noise is ever prevalent, especially in social media these days. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, yeah, meditation is, is absolutely the, the remedy uh, for, for social media, all that, all that stimulation. What is the worst film you've ever seen? And what did you learn from it that made you a better writer? Worst film of man, I've seen a lot of bad movies. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you, oh, man, I can't think of like what the worst one was. I will say one of them that I really thought was just really awful. Um, and it also is similar to my noir story, um, just conceptually, um, was uh, this Netflix movie, Bright. I don't know if you remember that from like, yeah. I thought all of the characters were written very one-dimensionally. Everything was surface level. I didn't really get to ask questions about the world. It just seemed like the writer wanted to tell me everything about their concept. They wouldn't let me experience it. Uh, and it made for a very grating experience. And uh, what I learned from that was that it, even if you have a high concept, uh, you have to not be constantly holding the reader's hand. You have to let them engage with your world. You have to let them ask questions. 
uh, and you have to give them two plus two and be and trust them enough to say that the answer is four. It's the same for trailers as well. I think there's too much handholding and too much giving of everything in a one to three minute trailer. I think that's yeah. what really puts me off a lot of a lot of the media these days. Everyone has one person that inspires them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? It's a combination of two people that I constantly look at. One of them is Will Eisner. Um, he has such a, such a visual approach to storytelling where the dialogue, the words, they play such a almost background part in it. You're so engaged with the emotion of the characters, um, and their, their physical actions, um, and being able to tell the story so visually first and have, have the words just sort of you know, add the, just an, enough context so that you know what's going on. That's what I really loved. And then also, you know, at the same time, um, Alan Moore, I just love his methodic approach, just the, the wanting to overturn as many uh, detail stones as you can um, to just make a more fleshed out story uh, with, you know, where you kind of build up this, this massive blueprint even if you're only going to use about 20% of it in the story. From a professional standpoint, you are a talented comic creator as well as writer, and you have done many comics, including Star Noir, and I can't wait to see the entire collected edition of this whenever that comes into play. So that means you just have to come back on and talk more about your amazing series in the future. So you're always welcome back. So professionally, you're welcome. So professionally, you're successful in that regard. Do you consider yourself personally successful? (laughs) <laughs> i am all I'm, I'm doing okay i don't know that's 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 probably my my honest answer it's like other people will tell me that i i am successful i am just always there's there's always the next level that i could be taking it to uh there's also there's always going to be more successful and i feel like that's just going to continue for the rest of my life the reverse of success is failure how do you deal with your failures I don't know. It's like, it's uh it's just a couple step process. Uh, the failure happens. It is frustration. Then it becomes sadness. And then it becomes the, the question always comes right after that is, well, what are you going to do about it? And from that question, that's always like, yeah, well, I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to figure out what I did wrong and I'm going to get back on this horse. And uh, that's usually how how I deal with failure. Um, I also like to fake quit. Fake quitting feels really good. Uh, it's really kind of a thought as long as you don't really quit, but fake quitting is feels really cathartic. And I like to do that right before I, uh, you know, maybe an hour later, I'll, I'll, I'll be back on, at, on the horse, you know, just trying to do my thing. Okay. Now I got to ask fake quit. Did you like throw your computer uh, off to the side and just storm off? Like, how does that work? No, you just, you just, you just act like, well, you know, that's it. That's it for the writing career. Like, I guess that's it. I guess that's it for Star Noir. I guess we're not doing anything. I guess, you know, I guess I'll just go work at the pizza place downstairs. And then you just, after an hour, you're like, okay, you just being ridiculous. You just need to, you just need to walk away for a bit and you'll come back. But in the moment, the fake quitting does feel really good. Well, I've, I've been doing that for years then. <laughs> But I think that's called procrastination. (laughs) The younger generation is looking at your work and they become inspired to be creative in their own way, whether it's as a writer or a comic writer, or maybe a creative person in some way, shape or form, maybe you've inspired them down that path. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? 
be true to who you are as is uh whether you're a writer you're an artist uh you know what have you we respond doesn't matter which generation you're in we respond to authenticity and there is a unique way that you can tell a story that nobody else can and i think that if you're able to tap into that you put a lot of uh, passion and energy right behind that we'll we'll see that that'll read that'll come through we know when something is half baked or lazily put together but we recognize things that had a lot of energy and thought put into it. You would think people seeing that would inspire other people to either try to do a story like yours or try to do their own thing and try to, you know, achieve the level of success that you're currently having. If your life was a comic book, what would its title be? And what would its soundtrack be? The title would be, man, I'm going to give you a title and then later I'm going to think of a better title. So my working title would be the perpetual warrior the soundtrack would be probably um, a probably a mixture of any kind of like sad art oscar music like post uh mixed with like um, a more upbeat like frank sinatra that's life uh kind of thing you know which you have your down moments and then you kind of like you know this is sad but it is also kind of funny what's happening at the same time well, that's a new one. I, I haven't heard that before. So that's uh, <laughs> that's very interesting to see. It makes me want yeah. to throw in some Frankie as I'm editing this. So uh, yeah. it may be a quicker edit. Well, Tony, I do hate to say, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a good time. Before I let you go, of course, where can we find you? How can we support you? Where are you on the wild world of the internet and anything else you'd like to promote? Uh, you can find me um, at T slash J on Twitter. Um, I am also on Instagram at Banana Bat, where you can see a lot of, I make a lot of uh, reels with my art um, set to 1940s music. So those are really fun to just kind of watch for 10 seconds. Um, and then I also, uh, about a year ago, I started a YouTube channel called The Writist, uh, where I break down story structure in video games. Um, people have really, really taken to that um, that channel. Um, yeah, I just go through uh, major video games and I pick pick a scene or pick a character uh, and I really just kind of drill down into what makes that special. Okay, we got to get you back on to talk about that because I, <laughs> yeah, I think sure. that that's very that's very notable too. I didn't realize you had a channel. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. So great, I'm going to subscribe as soon as we're done this. <laughs> cool, awesome. <laughs> Well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talk. You can, of course, find this interview and a thousand plus others quite literally on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's T-W-O, not the number two. That's a completely different website you don't want to go to. Of course, the YouTube channel is way more updated because my website's going through a revamp, which is youtube.com forward slash tgtmedia. The podcast is back after 12 or so years. You can find that at twogeekstalking.podbean.com or two geeks talking wherever you get your podcasts and as i say every week everyone has a story to tell it's up to me to help bring that out thanks for listening and watching on two geeks talking <laughs>